Thank you for listening to the Coal Mind Podcast. This is David Cole from Dallas, Texas, and it's December 13th, 2020. On playgrounds across America every day, when children don't get their way, they cry out, I'm taking my toys and I'm going to go play with someone else. In the same spirit, after the U.S. Supreme Court recently dismissed the Texas versus Pennsylvania lawsuit about the 2020 presidential election results, certain commentators and political figures on the far right have started to make noises about secession, the political equivalent of taking your toys and going away to play with somebody else. Of course, our country fought a long and bloody civil war about the idea of secession, and the Supreme Court laid it to rest legally in 1869 in the case of Texas versus White. This episode looks at the colorful and tragic history of that Supreme Court case and how the case is helpful in our time to remember just why the idea of secession has been relegated to the history books. Much of American history in the early 19th century involved a series of very difficult and ultimately failed compromises between the states about the balance between freedom and slavery. The Fugitive Slave Act, one such compromise, the Dred Scott case from the Supreme Court, and the Compromise of 1850, which is what gives rise to today's story leading to the Texas versus White case. The Compromise of 1850 was really a series of compromises that related to and rose out of the rapid and the vast territorial expansion of the United States in the early part of the 19th century. The relevant part of those compromises for today involved Texas. As part of the compromise, Texas basically gave up half of itself. If you see old maps of the state of Texas, you see a long stretch of territory running up through New Mexico and into what is now Colorado. Texas relinquished that, basically came to its present boundary of a state, in exchange for the United States assuming its debt, which had been crippling for some time, beginning in the days of the Republic and continuing in its early time as a state. Obviously, an enormous transaction, both in terms of how the map looked and financially. Another component of the finances of this compromise, Texas was given several million dollars in U.S. bonds, an enormous fortune for that time. The bonds took the form of $1,000 bonds each, payable 5% interest, after December 31st of 1864, payable either to the state of Texas or to the bearer of the bond. The bonds were delivered into the Texas state treasury, and the Texas legislature then prudently passed a law that they could not be resold without the signature on them, the personal signature on them, of the governor of Texas. And there sat the bonds in the safe for the next 15 years. Of course, those were very busy and turbulent years, the election of Abraham Lincoln in 1860 triggered the fall of the dominoes that people had been putting off with the compromises I was just talking about. Texas elected to join the side of secession and become a member of the Confederate States of America. The offices of the Texas state government stayed largely the same, but new leaders were installed at every level who were willing to state their loyalty to the Confederacy rather than to the United States. The Civil War proceeded. The South was slowly strangled at land and at sea, and by 1865, the war effort, such as still remained of it, was in dire straits. The government of Confederate Texas was desperate for money, and the bonds having now become callable, it traded several of them for medicine and for cotton. In other words, they gave them away to war profiteers to try to buy just a little more time in their doomed conflict against the Union. Not long afterwards, Lee surrendered at Appomattox. The Reconstruction Acts were passed, and a new government took office in Texas. 
The new government discovered these dealings with the bonds, and it sued to either get them back or to be repaid their value. And it sued in the U.S. Supreme Court, choosing to do so by invoking that court's original jurisdiction given under the Constitution over a case involving a state. Now we have Texas versus White. Twelve lawyers argued over the course of three days. Time limits were different in those days. One could observe that the lawyers for the defendants had an uphill battle. They were arguing in the Supreme Court of the United States of America that their clients should get to keep money that they made by funding an armed rebellion against the United States of America. Uphill battle, and perhaps predictably, those lawyers and their clients did not win. Texas did. Chief Justice Salmon P. Chase wrote the opinion, and it is scholarly, methodical, and by and large avoids name-calling and some of the caustic politics of that time in post-Civil War America. The opinion notably cites very few legal authorities other than the Constitution itself. His reasoning was straightforward. He reasoned that the word state can have three basic meanings. First, the people, the population that lives in a particular area. Second, the geographic area that we refer to when we say a state that you can draw upon a map and measure with miles. Or third, the government for a particular geographic area that manages the affairs of the people living there. People, geographic area, government. The Constitution, he observed, uses each of these meanings in different places. For example, when it discusses the diversity jurisdiction of the federal courts, it's referring to the geographic sense of the word state. People who live in a particular area have certain rights to go to court or not. Other parts use the word state in the sense of the people. For example, in the later articles of the Constitution, where it guarantees all states a form of republican government and guarantees defense. The Constitution also, though, uses a fourth meaning, which is the combination of these three, the people, the geographic area, and the government all united. And it was in this combined sense, reasoned Chase, that the union, described in the constitutional preamble, we the people, to form more perfect union, was formed. That union, he reasoned, was indissoluble, and actions taken by a rogue government against that union were legally void. Conceptually, one aspect of being a state, the government aspect of it, the third of the three I had just discussed, was incapable of trumping an irrevocable action taken by all three aspects of the state working together to form something else and larger. That reasoning is not perfect, but it got the job done. The case was decided. Texas got its money back, or at least it got a judgment allowing it to try and get its money back. The bonds had scattered all over the country by then. The reunited country now had a legal basis to continue rebuilding without further threats of secession. And this legal precedent has stood since 1869 without really any serious dispute. The real lesson for today, though, is not the legal holding of this case, which is sort of the capstone on the terrible conflict that was the Civil War. It is not to analyze Justice Chase's reasoning and his review of these constitutional provisions, but it's really to remember the story behind this case. Texas chose to secede from the Union with great fanfare and enthusiasm, but three things happened that you can see in the story of these bonds. First, when Texas made that decision, it basically took its government apart at every level. At every part of the government, every agency, every step, it either replaced the person that held that office or that person was willing to take an oath of office to a new national government. They basically destroyed the government they had in place and started over again. Predictably, the second aspect of this story follows from that. 
the inherent weakness of any new creation. You cannot take a government and basically start it over again and expect it to work fine. And you certainly can't expect your finances to be as strong as they would be if you were, as an accountant would say, a going concern. The newly constituted state of Texas was weak politically. It was weak in terms of ability to get things done because you had all these newbies in government and it just didn't have any money. And that leads to the third aspect of the story, which is how it ended for Texas, desperation. It was basically giving away things just to buy a little more time. It's easy to throw around the word secession, but Texas versus White and its story about these bonds and how they wound their way through the government of Texas during the 1850s and the Civil War and Reconstruction, that story illustrates starkly what happens when you actually try to act upon that word, disorder and poverty. Today on Coal Mind, we travel back to the 1860s, and we watched some shady dealings between the collapsing government of Confederate Texas and war profiteers. Not surprisingly, in the aftermath of the Civil War, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of the Reconstruction government of Texas and against those who stood to profit from secession. The holding of that case still stands, and the facts of the case are a powerful reminder of the real-world consequences of what secession actually means to real people. The end of 2020 brings continued discussion about the presidential election, as well as new COVID-19-related issues as effective vaccines begin to come online. I'll be choosing topics to discuss, depending on how those headlines shape up. You can follow this podcast on any of the main directories. I'd note it's now available on iHeartRadio and Pandora, if those are your preferred music or podcast sources. And it is available on Amazon as well, although you have to look around a little bit to find where they maintain their podcast directory. While you're doing your Christmas shopping, maybe pick up a podcast subscription too. If you enjoy listening to Cold Mind, I encourage you to join other satisfied listeners and leave a nice five-star review on Apple Podcasts. I appreciate you listening, and I look forward to sharing with you again soon.